This is Dan Fleisch, and this is the second podcast for Chapter 4 of A Student's Guide to Vectors and Tensors. This podcast will cover three sections of Chapter 4, starting with Section 4.4, which begins on page 110 and is about non-orthogonal coordinate systems. Also on this podcast will be a discussion of Section 4.5, which is about dual basis vectors, and 4.6, which is about finding covariant and contravariant vector components. As I said, section 4.4 begins on page 110, and this section starts off with a discussion of the projection technique that was introduced back in chapter 1 for finding the components of a vector. Specifically, if you look back on page 9 in figure 1.6, we use the idea of light sources shining down the axes in order to cast a shadow of a vector onto coordinate axes, and we said those shadows represent the projections of the vectors onto the axes, and that's how we found the vector components. But if you look at the A part of figure 1.6, you'll notice that there are really two ways you might specify how to shine that light. If you're trying to find the projection of vector A onto the x-axis, you could say shine the light parallel to the y-axis, actually anti-parallel because we're going toward the origin, or you could say shine the light perpendicular to the x-axis. Those are exactly equivalent because the y-axis is perpendicular to the x-axis. Likewise, for the y-component in the B part of figure 1.6, you could say shine the light anti-parallel to the x-axis, or you could say shine the light perpendicular to the y-axis. And it wouldn't matter which way you described it, those amount to the same thing. But imagine a two-axis coordinate system in which the axes are not perpendicular. As you can see in the footnote on the bottom of page 111, this isn't just an academic exercise. There are plenty of applications in which you run into non-orthogonal axes. An example of that is shown in figure 410 on the top of page 111. There you see a y-axis that does not run straight up the page like our normal y-axis does, but I've left the x-axis pointing in the horizontal direction, and you can see the x and y-axis do not make a 90-degree angle. I drew in a vector A, and in the left part of the figure, you can see what happens if you put your light source on top and shine the light anti-parallel to the y-axis. It does cast a shadow of vector A onto the x-axis, and that's one component of vector A. In the right part of figure 410, that light is being shined anti-parallel to the x-axis, and vector A casts a shadow onto the y-axis. But what if instead of aligning our light sources to shine anti-parallel to the y and the x-axis, what if we align them to shine perpendicular? You can see a case like that if you look on the next page, page 112, at figure 411. In the left part of that figure, a light source is shining perpendicular to the x-axis. And that light source causes vector A to cast a shadow onto the x-axis that is a different length than the shadow we got in figure 410 when we shine this light anti-parallel to the y-axis. And in the right side of figure 411, there you see a light source that is shining perpendicular to the y-axis. Again, it is not anti-parallel to the x-axis. In this case, it's perpendicular to the y-axis, and vector A casts a shadow that is, again, different in length from the shadow we got in figure 410 when we shined the light anti-parallel to the x-axis. So if we get different lengths of the components depending on exactly how we orient the light, which are the correct components, well, as you're going to see in the remainder of this chapter, the question's a little more complicated than that. You can start to get an idea of that by looking at the lengths of the shadows you get and seeing if they add up to give you vector A like vector components should. 
You can see that in figure 412 in the middle of page 112, where in the A part of that figure, I've taken the shadows cast by vector A when the light is shined parallel or anti-parallel to the axes, and those two do add up nicely to give you vector A, as components should. But when you do the perpendicular projections, the shadow cast on the y-axis and the shadow cast on the x-axis do not add up to give you the vector A. So are these really components at all? As you're about to see, you can get components from perpendicular projections, but you're not able to do it simply by adding up the shadows as we've been doing. Another issue that there's something more complex going on here comes about when you look at how these components transform between coordinate systems. It turns out that the projections you get when you do parallel projection transform using the inverse transformation, exactly as we talked about earlier in this chapter, in which the inverse transformation is used to find the vector components in the new system, whereas the direct transformation is used to rotate the basis vectors. So we said that's one of the reasons that that type of component is called a contravariant component. Contra meaning against, because they transform in the opposite way from the way the basis vectors transform. That is, basis vectors rotate using a direct transform, and these contravariant components transform using the inverse transformation matrix. So, the parallel projection technique does give us true components by looking at the lengths of the shadows on the axes, and those components are called the contravariant components. But as we're going to see, once we have a way of getting true components from the perpendicular projection method, those are going to transform using the same transformation matrix that we use to rotate the basis vectors. They are going to be covariant. So these two different ways of forming components are going to turn out to be very important when we want to write equations in a way that doesn't depend on the particular coordinate system we're using. And to understand how you can get components from the perpendicular projection approach, you need to understand something called dual basis vectors. And those are described in section 4.5. Section 4.5, which begins on page 113, begins by reminding you how basis vectors and components work. We said in the previous section that the shadows cast onto the coordinate axes using the parallel projection technique work just fine as components and they add up to give you the original vector as components and basis vectors should. You can see that on the top of page 114, figure 413 for the parallel projection components. There's the vector A, it's casting a shadow onto the direction of the E sub 1 basis vector, that's the basis vector along the x-axis, and that component is then A super X E sub 1. In this part of the podcast, I'm going to be using super and sub a lot because it's very important whether these indices are written as superscripts or subscripts, because superscripts will always represent contravariant quantities, and subscripts will always represent covariant quantities. And it's obvious when you're looking at the page, but I'm going to have to keep saying it to make sure you're looking at the right ones here. So, the projection of A onto the x-axis, which is the direction of the E sub 1 original basis vector, gives us the component, which is A super x, E sub 1. Then, if you look on the right side of figure 413, you see the parallel projection onto the direction of the E sub 2 basis vector, that is along the y-axis, and you get a component that is A super y E sub 2. That component added to the component from the left figure gives you the vector A as they should. 
but we said this doesn't work if you use the perpendicular projections, and we showed that in figure 412 back on page 112, in which you could see that the projections onto the directions of the original basis vectors do not add up to give you vector A. So you may wonder, well, maybe there are other basis vectors that will help us here. And that is exactly right. There are, in fact, basis vectors called reciprocal or dual basis vectors that let us use perpendicular projection and give us the exact kinds of components we're looking for, which will combine with those basis vectors to give us our original vector A back. So if there are these new dual basis vectors, you should wonder two things about them. What direction do they point and what is their length or magnitude? The direction is easy to get. Each dual basis vector is perpendicular to the original basis vectors with different indices. What does that mean? Well, in this case, we only have index 1 or 2 because there's only two axes. So you know that the dual basis vector, which is written as E superscript 1, there's a hint about how it's going to transform, must be perpendicular to the original basis vector with a different index, that is E sub 2. Likewise, the new dual basis vector E superscript 2 must be perpendicular to the original basis vector with the different index, that being E sub 1. That's harder to say in words than it is to look at in a figure. So if you look in figure 414 on the top of page 115, you'll see what I mean by this. Don't worry about the projections yet. Just look at E superscript 1 on the left part of this figure and notice that it is drawn at an angle of 90 degrees to the direction of the original E sub 2 basis vector, which was along the y-axis. In the right part of the figure, E superscript 2 is drawn perpendicular to the x-axis, that is, E superscript 2 is going straight up the page when the x-axis goes to the right, because the original E sub 1 basis vector pointed along the x-axis. So each of these dual basis vectors is perpendicular to the original basis vector with the other index. E super 1 is perpendicular to E sub 2, and E superscript 2 is perpendicular to E sub 1. And if there were more axes, each dual basis vector would be perpendicular to all of the original basis vectors with different indices than the dual basis vector you're considering. We'll see an example of that in a three-dimensional case in just a minute. But first, let's talk about the length of the dual basis vectors. The dual basis vectors are defined to have a length such that when you dot the dual basis vector with its corresponding original basis vector, such as E super 1 dotted into E sub 1, or E super 2 dotted into E sub 2, you always get 1 as the result of that scalar product operation. This is talked about in the paragraph on the bottom of page 114. And of course, E superscript 1 dotted into E sub 1 can be written as the magnitude of E super 1 times the magnitude of E sub 1 times the cosine of the angle between them. If you write it that way and then isolate the magnitude of E super 1, you get equation 421 on the bottom of page 114. It says the magnitude of E super 1, the first dual basis vector, is equal to 1 over the magnitude of E sub 1 times the cosine of theta 1, where theta 1 is the angle between the dual basis vector E super 1 and the original basis vector E sub 1. That just comes from setting the dot product equal to 1 and dividing through by what you see in the denominator of equation 421. 
Likewise, for the length of E super 2, you can see that on the top of page 115 in equation 422. It says E super 2 magnitude is equal to 1 over E subscript 2, that is the corresponding original basis vector, times the cosine of theta 2, where theta 2 is the angle between E super 2 and E sub 2, between the dual and the original basis vector, with index equal to 2. So you know the direction of each dual basis vector must be perpendicular to the directions of all the original basis vectors with different indices, and you know that the length of the dual basis vectors must be such that when you dot them into their corresponding original basis vector, you get 1. So what does this have to do with making real components, that is, components that add up to give us the original vector A, from our perpendicular projections? You can see the answer in figure 414 at the top of page 115. When you do the perpendicular projection, you start off perpendicular to the direction of one of the original basis vectors, but you continue on to the direction of the dual basis vector. So in the left part of figure 414, the light source is perpendicular to the x-axis, but in order to find the component that pertains to the dual basis vector, you continue on and let the shadow of vector A fall onto the direction of the dual basis vector E super 1. Likewise, in the right portion of the figure, the light source is made perpendicular to the direction of the original basis vector E sub 2, which is along the y-axis in this case, but the projection is taken not onto that direction, but onto the direction of the dual basis vector E super 2. The importance of this is that the dual basis vectors, when combined with the projections made in this way, can be used to express vector A exactly as we did using the original basis vectors and the parallel projection components. So take a look at equation 423 in the middle of page 115. What you see there is that vector A can be written as A sub X E super 1 plus A sub Y E super 2. In other words, we're combining the dual basis vectors, E super 1 and E super 2, with A sub X and A sub Y, which must be covariant components of the vector A. Remember, just two pages ago, on page 113, in equation 420, we wrote the vector A as A super X times E sub 1 plus A super Y times E sub 2. That is, the contravariant component A super X with the original basis vector E sub 1 and the contravariant component A super Y with the original basis vector E sub 2. So either of these two ways of writing the vector A is perfectly valid. And as you might expect, since the subscripts represent covariant quantities, that is, quantities which use the same transformation matrix that we use to rotate the basis vectors, and superscripts represent contravariant quantities, that is, quantities which use the inverse transformation matrix, we always combine a subscripted, that is, a covariant component, with a superscripted, that is, contravariant or dual basis vector. Or we could use, as we did back on page 113, a contravariant component, a super X or a super Y, and combine it with an original covariant basis vector, E sub 1 or E sub 2. On the bottom of page 115, there's a little discussion. In any orthonormal coordinate system, the dual 
and the original basis vectors are exactly the same. There is no distinction between them. The reason for that should be pretty clear because remember, we said the directions of the dual basis vectors are always perpendicular to the original basis vectors with different indices. But of course, if the axes are perpendicular to one another, when you make the reciprocal basis vector perpendicular to the other axis, it winds up being along the direction of the other original basis vector. Likewise for the lengths, since the dual basis vectors and the original basis vectors are in the same direction, when you do that dot product, you get cosine of zero, which is one. If these are orthonormal basis vectors, they each have a length of one, and that says that the dual basis vectors have a length of one over one times the cosine of zero, which means they also have a length of one. So when you've got orthonormal coordinate systems, such as the i-hat, j-hat, k-hat system we've been using, the difference between dual and original basis vectors completely disappear. And that means that the difference between contravariant and covariant quantities also disappears. That's why you can do problems in those coordinate systems without ever worrying about any of this. Now, I said earlier that you can expand this to three dimensions pretty easily. Actually, it uses two of the vector operations we discussed in Chapter 2. Look on the middle of page 116, equation 424. This tells you how to find the dual basis vectors, e super 1, e super 2, e super 3, when you know the original basis vectors, e sub 1, e sub 2, and e sub 3. For example, e super 1 is just the cross product of the two original basis vectors with different indices, that is with 2 and 3 when we're looking at e super 1, and that cross product guarantees that e super 1 will be perpendicular to each of those two vectors, because you know when you form the cross product, the result is perpendicular to each of the two vectors that you put into that cross product. And in the denominator, by having e sub 1 dot the quantity e sub 2 cross e sub 3, we're doing a triple scalar product. That is the volume of the parallelopiped formed by those vectors. And by putting that in the denominator, we guarantee that e super 1 dot e sub 1 must have a result of 1. And the same thing for e super 2 and e super 3. So these definitions guarantee that we meet both the direction and the length requirement for dual basis vectors. The bottom of page 116 just shows the vector A written out in both ways. Equation 425 says A equals the contravariant components A super X and A super Y times the original covariant basis vectors E sub 1 and E sub 2. Or we could have chosen to write A as the covariant components A sub X and A sub Y times the dual or contravariant basis vectors e super 1 and e super 2. And whenever you combine contravariant components with covariant basis vectors or covariant components with contravariant basis vectors, you get a quantity that is invariant when you transform coordinates. That should make some sense to you. Think of it this way. We know that contravariant quantities transform using the inverse transformation matrix. We also know that covariant quantities transform using the direct transformation matrix. So of course when you multiply a covariant quantity times a contravariant quantity and then transform the result, the covariant quantity is changing in one way and the contravariant quantity is changing in the opposite way and those changes will offset one another.
So the quantity formed by their combination, such as vector A as written in equation 425, is invariant under transformation of coordinates. That's why it's important to understand both covariant and contravariant components and basis vectors. But you're probably wondering, how do I actually calculate these things? And that's the subject of section 4.6. Section 4.6, which begins on page 117, shows you an example of original and dual basis vectors and contravariant and covariant components. Take a look at figure 415 in the middle of page 117. There you see a vector A, which has an x component of 7 and a y component of 2. And we'll take our original basis vectors as E sub 1, which points upward but to the right of the y-axis. Its x and y components are 1 and 3 and basis vector E sub 2, which points along the x-axis and has an x component of 4 and a y component of 0. So these basis vectors are neither orthogonal nor are they normalized because neither has a length of 1. But finding the contravariant components A super 1 and A super 2 is pretty straightforward. You simply use the parallel projection, and that's shown in figure 416. Look at the A part of the figure first. You have to imagine a light source off to the right because we're coming in anti-parallel to the x-axis. And vector A, there's a dashed line going to the left, will cast a shadow onto the direction of original basis vector E sub 1. And the length of what is projected there is actually shorter than E sub 1, the basis vector. But you know that that length of that projection must be the contravariant component A super 1 times the magnitude of the basis vector, E sub 1. That's the length of the projection. Likewise, in the B part of the figure, you have to imagine a light source up and to the right so that it's projecting its beam anti-parallel to basis vector E sub 1. That's going to cause vector A to cast a shadow down onto the direction of E sub 2. You see again the little dashed line showing you the angle of the rays. And the component A super 2 can be determined by the fact that that projection must be equal to the contravariant component A super 2 times the magnitude of the original basis vector E sub 2. Just by eyeballing these two, you can see that A super 1 should actually be less than 1 because when you multiply it by the magnitude of E sub 1, it's got to come out shorter than E sub 1. You might guess that A1 times the magnitude of E1 is about two-thirds of the length of E1, so A super 1 might be about two-thirds. And in the B part of the figure, A super 2 times the magnitude of E sub 2, it's about 50% longer than E sub 2, and therefore you might expect A super 2 to be something on the order of one and a half. So here's how you do the math to actually find those contravariant components, A super 1 and A super 2. Start out by writing the vector as the linear combination of contravariant components times the original basis vectors. That's equation 4.26 on the top of page 118. The vector A is equal to A super 1 times E sub 1 plus A super 2 times E sub 2. That's written as one equation, but if you think about it, there's really two equations buried in there because if that equation is true, then the component equations must be true. I'm going to use the x and y component equations. You can see that just below equation 4.26 where a sub x must be a super 1 times e sub 1, the x part of that basis vector, plus a super 2 times e sub 2 comma x, which is the x part of the e2 basis vector. Likewise, the y components must all add up, so a sub y must be equal to a super 1, 
e sub 1 comma y plus a super 2 times e sub 2 comma y. Well, those are two simultaneous equations. There's lots of ways to do that. In the problems at the end of the chapter, you can see how to do it using elimination or substitution, but we're going to use Cramer's rule here. Don't forget, if you're not familiar with that, you can find a review of matrix algebra on the book's website. To use Cramer's rule, you first have to write this as a matrix equation, which is done in equation 427 in the middle of page 118, where the column vector 7, 2 is equal to a1 times the column vector 1, 3, that's no more than the original basis vector e sub 1, plus a super 2 times the original basis vector e sub 2, which is 4, 0. A more convenient way to write that before you apply Cramer's rule is shown in 428, and using Cramer's rule, you can then solve for a super 1 and a super 2. Those are given in equation 429, and exactly as we suspected, a super 1 is about 2 thirds, that is 0.667, and a super 2 is about 1.5, actually 1.583. So we found the contravariant components simply by doing parallel projection onto the directions of the original basis vectors, and remembering that those projections don't give you the component, they give you the value of the component times the length of the relevant basis vector. By writing those as matrix equations, we can solve for the contravariant components a super 1 and a super 2. And you can use the same process to find the covariant components a sub 1 and a sub 2, but remember that perpendicular projection must be onto the directions of the dual basis vectors. So before you can go about that, you need to know which way are the dual basis vectors pointing and how long are they. Well, the directions are easy. Dual basis vector E super 1 has got to be perpendicular to E sub 2. Likewise, E super 2 must be perpendicular to E sub 1. You can see these on the top of page 119 in figure 417. There's a lot of stuff on there, but for now, just look at the direction of E super 1. There it is. It's on the left part of the figure, pointing straight up the y-axis. Why? Because it's perpendicular to the original basis vector E sub 2, which was along the x-axis. So to be perpendicular to that, E super 1 must point along the y-axis. Likewise, to find the direction of E super 2, you need to make it perpendicular to E sub 1. Well, in the B part of the figure, you can see E sub 1 pointing up and to the right, and E super 2 is the tiny little stub of a vector pointing down and to the right just below the origin. So we know those directions. What about their magnitudes? Well, to find their magnitudes, we're going to have to know the magnitudes of the original basis vectors. Those are computed at the bottom of page 118 and 430 simply by taking the x part squared and the y part squared for e sub 1, and that gives about 3.16, and the x part squared plus the y part squared. There is no y part for e sub 2, so that's just a length of 4. But of course, we don't just take 1 over the original basis vector's lengths. We've got to take 1 over those basis vector's lengths times the cosine of the angle between each of those vectors and the corresponding dual basis vector. That's shown on the top of page 119 in equation 431. So what's the angle theta 1 between E super 1 and E sub 1? Just have to do a little geometry on that. That's discussed on the bottom of page 118. Theta 1 is about 18.43 degrees. Likewise, if you look at where E sub 2 and E super 2 are, you find out that theta 2 is also that same angle, 18.43 degrees. So when you plug in the lengths of the original basis vectors and the angles between the corresponding basis vectors, you get the results of equation 431.
There you see that the length of the first dual basis vector e super 1 is 0.333, and the length of the second dual basis vector e super 2 is 0.264. That's why they had the very short lengths that I drew in figure 417. And now that you know the lengths of the dual basis vectors, you can work through the geometry to find the vector components that go with them. That begins in the middle of page 119 by finding the length of vector a, that's equation 4.32, and the length of a is just the square root of its component squared and added, and that comes out to be 7.28. You can also determine that the angle between a and the x-axis is about 15.94 degrees. This lets you find the angle between a and the original basis vector e1, which comes out about 55.62 degrees, and the angle between A and original basis vector E sub 2, which is about 15.94 degrees. The reason we care about those angles and lengths can be seen when you look at figure 417A on the top of page 119. Remember, we're trying to perpendicular project vector A onto the direction of E superscript 1, the first of the dual basis vectors. So the light source is often to the right and a little below the x-axis, and it shines so that the shadow from the tip of vector A moves up and to the left, perpendicular to the original E sub 1 basis vector, but we keep going until we hit the direction of the E super 1 basis vector. That is the y-axis in this case. And we know that the length of that projection must be component A sub 1 times the dual basis vector E super 1. So that's why we care about the angle theta 1 and the length of A. You should be able to see that the segment marked L1 is equal to the magnitude of A times the cosine of the angle between A and original basis vector E sub 1. That's written in equation 4.33. When you plug in the values, you get that the length L1 is 4.11. And if you look at the right triangle formed by A sub 1 and the length of E super 1 and L1, you can see that the cosine of theta 1 must be the adjacent side L1 divided by A sub 1 times the length of E super 1. Therefore, you can solve for A sub 1 times the length of E super 1. That's done in equation 434 at the bottom of page 119. It's equal to L1 over the cosine of theta 1, which gives you 4.33. Again, that's not the covariant component A sub 1. That's the covariant component A sub 1 times the length of the first dual basis vector, E super 1. So if you want to know what A sub 1 is, you've got to divide by that length of that first dual basis vector, which we said was 0.333. And when you do that divide, you find that A1 is equal to 13.0. Now you can do the same thing to find the second covariant component, A sub 2. For that, use the B part of figure 417 at the top of page 119. Now we project perpendicular to the x-axis, so the light source is straight up above vector A. It shines down, and you see the dotted line from the tip of vector A going perpendicular to the x-axis, but we continue on until we hit the direction of E super 2, the second dual basis vector, and we know that that projection onto that direction is A sub 2 times the length of E super 2. We go through a similar geometric process where we find the segment length L2, which is the length along the x-axis. That's shown on the top of page 120, equation 435, and L2 turns out to be 7. We then use that as the adjacent side of the triangle formed with A sub 2, E super 2 as the hypotenuse, and that means that we can say that the covariant component A sub 2 times the length of E super 2 must equal L2 over the cosine of theta 2. 
when you plug in the numbers, as is done in equation 436 on page 120, you get 7.38 for that combination of a sub 2 times the length of e super 2. When you divide by the length of that second dual basis vector, you find that a sub 2 equals 28. So the covariant components are 13 for a sub 1 and 28 for a sub 2. That seemed like it took a fair amount of work because of the geometrical approach we took, but there are two simpler ways to do this, and the first of those is the algebraic approach that's shown on the bottom of page 120. Starting with equation 437, there you see I've written vector A as the combination of the covariant components of the dual basis vectors, and since we now know those dual basis vectors, we can put those values in. We know that the x part of e super 1 is 0, since e super 1 lies along the y-axis, and e super 1's y part is its entire length of 0.333. The x part of the second dual basis vector, e super 2, turns out to be 0.25, and the y part turns out to be minus 0.083. So now that you know the x and y components of e super 1 and e super 2, you can simply plug those in, as is done in equation 438. Getting ready to do Kramer's rule again, we write them as they are shown in 439. Then you apply Kramer's rule, and lo and behold, you get a sub 1, the first covariant component, is equal to 13.0, and a sub 2, the second covariant component, is equal to 28. The same answers we got from the geometric approach. I think those approaches are worth seeing, but now that you've seen them, I think you'll be very glad to see that there's a much simpler approach to finding those components once you have the basis vectors in hand. And that's shown on the top of page 121. If you want the covariant component a sub 1, you simply dot vector a into the original basis vector e sub 1. That means you take the x component of a times e sub 1x and add the y component of a times e sub 1y. You do the same thing for the second covariant component, a sub 2. When you want the contravariant component, a super 1, you proceed as shown in equation 442. a super 1 is equal to the vector a dotted into the dual basis vector, e super 1. That means a sub x, e super 1 sub x, plus a y times e super 1 sub y. And you can do the same thing for a super 2, the second contravariant component. That all looks much simpler when you see how it actually works. In the next two lines, since you know that vector a has components 7 and 2, and you know that the original basis vector e sub 1 has components 1 and 3, you simply do the dot product, multiplying the x parts, multiplying the y parts, adding the results, you get 13. For a sub 2, same thing on the next line, you get 28. For the covariant components, a super 1 and a super 2, you take the components 7, 2 for vector a, and you dot them into the dual basis vectors, the first of which has components 0 and 0 0.333, and the second of which has components 0 0.25 and minus 0 0.083, and you get the contravariant component a super 1 is 0.666, and the contravariant component a super 2 is 1.58. So there you go, three different ways of finding the covariant and contravariant components once you know the vector and the original basis vectors. Now you will undoubtedly find, as you read through the literature on vectors and tensors, that some authors refer to a covariant vector or a contravariant vector. But we just found covariant and contravariant components for the same vector. 
So how does that work? The answer is that using the techniques that we just went through, you can find the covariant or contravariant components of any vector. It may be that one set of components is much simpler and more natural for describing that vector, and that's probably why an author is calling it a covariant or contravariant vector. It doesn't mean that the other components don't exist for that vector. It just means that one set of components may be much simpler and easier to use to solve problems. So how do we use these ideas of different types of components and different types of basis vectors to solve problems and, and write equations in a way that is invariant across coordinate transformations? The understanding of that is made a lot easier if you understand two notational issues. Those are called the index notation and the Einstein summation convention, and they're the subjects of the remaining sections of this chapter. Those sections are covered in the last podcast for Chapter 4.